0: Did you know that whenever you use a website, you give them permission to track what you do online? If you keep the tab open, they can see what you do and create a digital footprint of you. Well, with Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you never have to worry about downloading any risky files, but all of your web browsing will be protected, guaranteeing that you can search freely without leaving any digital footprint and guaranteeing that you can't be tracked online. If you feel like your online protection should be better, Use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We are continuing with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, and we are currently on part one, chapter-ish, I guess. It's broken up, weirdly. It's done in three parts. I'm separating it when I feel like, because that's fun. Uh, This show is brought to you by my store, where you can purchase all my audiobooks for €5. Or um, I also have like a weird thing with, um, like an affiliate thing with Surfshark VPN. And if you would like a VPN, which allows you to change your country to wherever you please. And it can help you get like cheaper flights. It can get you, um, it can give you the possibility to watch shows that aren't available in your country. It can get you around region blocked things. Please use the link in the description notes. uh, It helps me. Do this show which would be fantastic so if you need a vpn please check the description notes uh, that'd be great let's get started trigger warning this book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period i do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life i shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms but apart from that the book will stay as it was intended to be read If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. Before noontide, they're up at the fog machine again, but they haven't got it turned up to full. It's not so thick, but what I can see if I strain real hard. One of these days, I'll stop straining and let myself go completely. Lose myself in the fog, the way some of the other chronics have. But for the time being, I'm interested in this new man. I want to see how he takes to the group meeting coming up. Ten minutes to one, the fog dissolves completely, and the black boys are telling the acutes to clear the floor for the meeting. All the tables are carried out of the day room to the tub room across the hall. Leaves the floor, McMurphy says, like he was aiming to have a little dance. The big nurse watches all this through her window. She hasn't moved from her spot in front of that one window for three solid hours. Not even for lunch. The day room floor gets cleared of tables. And at one o'clock, the doctor comes out of his office down the hall, nods once at the nurse as he goes past where she's watching from her window, and sits in his chair just to the left of the door. The patients sit down when he does. Then the little nurses and the residents straggle in. When everybody's down, the big nurse gets up from behind her window and goes back to the rear of the nurse's station, to that steel panel with dials and buttons on it, sets some kind of automatic pilot to run things while she's away, and comes out to the day room, carrying the lockbook, and a basket full of notes. Her uniform, even after she's been here half a day, is still starched so stiff it don't exactly bend any place. It cracks sharp at the joints with a sound like frozen canvas being folded. She sits just to the right of the door. As soon as she sat down, old Pete Brancini swings his feet and starts wagging his head and wheezing, "I'm tired." Whew, oh, Lord. Oh, I'm awful, Dad. The way he always does whenever there's a new man on the ward who might listen to him. The big nurse doesn't look over at Pete. She's going through the papers in her basket. Somebody go sit beside Mr. bancini she says. Quiet him down so we can start the meeting. Billy Bibbit goes. Pete is turned, facing McMurphy. And is lolling his head from side to side like a signal light at a railroad crossing. He worked on the railroad thirty years. Now he's worked clean out, but still functioning on the memory. I'm tired, he says, wagging his face at McMurphy. Take it easy, Pete, Billy says, lays a freckled hand on Pete's knee. Awful tired, I know, Pete. Past the skinny knee, and Pete pulls back his face realizes nobody's going to heed his complaint today. The nurse takes off her wristwatch and looks at the ward clock and winds her watch and sets it face toward her in the basket. She takes a folder from the basket. Now, shall we get into the meeting? She looks around to see if anybody else is about to interrupt her, smiling steady as her head turns in collar. The guys won't look at her. They're all looking for hangnails. Except McMurphy. He's got himself an armchair in the corner and sits in it like he's claimed it for good. And he's watching her every move. He's still got his cap on, jammed tight around his red head like a motorcycle racer. A deck of cards in his lap, open for a one-handed cut. Then clank shut with the sound blown up loud by the silence. The nurse's swinging eyes hang on him for a second. She's been watching him play poker all morning and though she hasn't seen any money pass hands, she suspects he's not exactly the type that's going to be happy with the ward rule for gambling of matches only. The deck whispers open and clacks shut again, and then disappears somewhere in one of those big palms. The nurse looks at her watch again and pulls a slip of paper out from her folder she's holding, looks at it, and returns it to the folder. She puts the folder back down and picks up the logbook. Ellis coughs from his place on the wall. She waits till he stops. Now, at the end of Friday's meeting, we were discussing Mr. Harding's problem concerning his young wife. He had stated that his wife was extremely well endowed in the bosom, and that made him uneasy because she drew stares from all men on the street. She starts opening the places in the lockbook. Little slips of paper, stick out the top of the book, and mark the pages. According to the notes listed by various patients in the log, Mr. Harding has been heard to say that she damn well gives the bastards reason to stare. He has also been heard to say that he may give her reason to seek further sexual attention. He has been heard to say, my dear, sweet, but illiterate wife, thinks that any word or gesture that does not smack of brickyard brawn and brutality is a word or gesture of weak dandyism. She continues reading silently from the book for a while, then closes it. He has also stated that his wife's ample bosom, at times, gives him a feeling of inferiority. So, does anyone care to touch upon this subject further? Harding shuts his eyes, and nobody else says anything. May Murphy looks around at the other guys, waiting to see if anybody's going to answer the nurse. Then holds his hand up and snaps his fingers, like a school kid in class. The nurse nods at him. Mr. McMurray, touch upon what? What? Touch? You ask, I believe. Does anybody care to touch upon? Touch upon the subject, Mr. McMurray. The subject of Harding's problems with his wife. Oh, I thought you meant touch upon her... (laughs) something else. Now what could you... But she stops. She was almost flustered for a second there. Some of the acutes hide grins, and McMurphy takes a huge stretch, yawns, winks at Harding. Then the nurse, calm as anything, puts the logbook in her basket, and takes out another folder, and opens it, and starts reading. McMurray, Randall, Patrick, committed by the state from Pendleton Farm for correction. For diagnosis and possible treatment. 35 years old, never married, Distinguished Service Cross in Korea for leading an escape from a communist prison camp. A dishonorable discharge afterward for insubordination. Followed by a history of street brawls and barroom fights, and a series of arrests for drunkenness, assault, and battery. Disturbing the peace, repeated gambling, and one arrest for rape. Rape, the doctor perks up. Statutory, with a girl of... Whoa, couldn't make that stick, McMurphy says to the doctor. The girl wouldn't testify. With a girl of 15. Says she was 17, Doc. She was plenty willing. A court doctor's examination of the child proved entry. Repeated entry. The record states, So willing, in fact, I took to sew my pants shut. The child refused to testify in spite of the doctor's findings. There seemed to be intimidation. Defendant left town shortly after the trial. Oh boy, I had to leave. Doc, let me tell you. He leans forward with an elbow on knee, lowering his voice to the doctor across the room. That little hustler would have actually burnt me to a frazzle by the time she reached legal 16. She got to where she was tripping me and beating me to the floor. The nurse closes up the folder and passes it across the doorway to the doctor. Our new admission, Dr. Spivey. Just like she's got a man folded up inside that yellow paper and could pass him on to be looked over. I thought I might brief you on his record later today, but he seems to insist on asserting himself in the group meeting. We might as well dispense with him now. The doctor fishes his glasses from his coat pocket by pulling on the string, works them on his nose in front of his eyes. They're tipped a little to the right, but he leans his head to the left and brings them level. He's smiling a little as he turns through the folder, just as tickled by this new man's brassy way of talking right up as the rest of us. But just as the rest of us, He's careful not to let himself come right out and laugh. The doctor closes the folder when he gets to the end and puts his glasses back in his pocket. He looks to where McMurphy has still leaned out at him from across the day room. You've, it seems, no other psychiatric history, Mr. McMurray. McMurphy, Doc. Oh, but I thought the nurse was saying. He opens up the folder again, fishes out the glasses, looks the record over for a minute before he closes it and puts his glasses back in his pocket. Yes, McMurphy. That is correct, I beg your pardon. It's okay, Doc. That lady there started it. Made the mistake. I've known some people inclined to do that. I had this uncle whose name was Halahan, and he went with a woman who kept acting like she couldn't remember his name right, and calling him Hooligan just to get his goat. Went on for months before he stopped her. Stopped her good, too. Oh, how did he stop her? The doctor asks. McMurphy grins and rubs his nose with his thumb. Oh, now, nah. I can't be telling that. I keep Uncle Hallihan's method a strict secret, you see, in case I need to use it myself someday. He says it right at the nurse. She smiles right back at him, and he looks over at the doctor. Now, what was you asking about my record, Doc? Yes. I was wondering if you had any previous psychiatric history. Any analysis? Any time spent in other institutions? Well, counting state and county coolers. Mental institutions. Ah, no. If that's the case, this is my first trip. But I am crazy doc. I swear I am. Well, here. Let me show you here. I believe that other doctor at the work farm. He gets up. "'slips the deck of cards in the pocket of his jacket "'and comes across the room to lean over the doctor's shoulders "'and thumb through the pages of his lap. I "'Believe he wrote something back of the back here somewhere. "'Yes, I missed that. "'Just a moment.' "'The doctor fishes his glasses out again, "'puts them on, and looks to where McMurphy is pointing. "'Right there, doc. "'The nurse left this part out while she was summarizing my record. "'Where it says... McMurphy has evidenced repeated, and I just want to make sure I'm understood completely, Doc, repeated outbreaks of passion that suggest the possible diagnosis of psychopath. He told me psychopath just means I fight and f- Pardon me, ladies. I mean, he puts it overzealous in my sexual relations. Doctor, is that real serious? He asked it with such a limey boy look of worry and concern over his broad, tough face. The doctor can't help but bending his head to hide another little snicker in his collar. And his glasses fall from his nose, dead center, back in his pocket. All the acutes are smiling too now, and even some of the chronics. I mean, that overzealousness, Doc. Have you ever been troubled by it? The doctor wipes his eyes. No, McMurphy, I'll admit I haven't. I am interested. However, that doctor at the work farm added this statement. Don't overlook the possibility that this man might be feigning psychosis to escape the drudgery of the work farm. He looks up at McMurphy. And what about that, Mr. McMurphy? Doctor, he stands up to his full height, wrinkles his forehead, and holds out both arms, open and honest to all the wide world. Do I look like a sane man? The doctor is working so hard to keep from giggling again, he can't answer. McMurphy pivots away from the doctor and asks the same thing to the big nurse. Do I? Instead of answering, she stands up and takes the manila folder away from the doctor and puts it back in the basket under her watch. She sits back down. Perhaps, doctor, you should advise Mr. McMurray on the protocol of these group meetings. Ma'am, McMurphy says, have I told you about my Uncle Halahan and the woman who used to screw up his name? She looks at him a long time without her smile. She has the ability to turn her smile into whatever expression she wants to use on somebody. But the look she turns it into is no different, just a calculated mechanical expression to serve her purpose. Finally, she says, I beg your pardon, Mac Murphy. She turns back to the doctor. Now, doctor, if you would explain... The doctor holds his hands and leans back. Yes, I suppose what I should do is explain the complete theory of our therapeutic community while we're at it. Though I usually save it until later. Yes, a good idea, Miss Ratchet. A fine idea. Certainly the theory, too, Doctor. But what I had in mind was the rule that the patients remain seated during the course of the meeting. Yes, of course. Then I will explain the theory. Mr. McMurphy, one of the few things is that the patients remain seated during the course of the meeting. It is the only way, you see, for us to maintain order. Sure, Doc. I just got up to show you that thing in my record book. He goes over to his chair, gives another big stretch and yawn, sits down, and moves around for a while, like a dog coming to rest. When he's comfortable, he looks over at the doctor, waiting. As to the theory, the doctor takes a deep, happy breath. Fuck the wife, Buckley says. McMurphy Murphy hides his mouth behind the back of his hand, and calls across the ward to Ruckley in a scratchy whisper. Whose wife? And Martini's head snaps up, eyes wide, staring. Yeah, whose wife? Oh, her? Yeah. I see her. Yeah. I'd give a lot to have that man's eyes, McMurphy says of Martini, and then doesn't say anything the rest of the meeting. Just sits down and watches, and doesn't miss a thing that happens, or a word that's said. The doctor talks about his theory until the big nurse finally decides he's used up time enough and asks him to hush so they can get on to Harding. And they talk the rest of the meeting about that. McMurphy sits forward in his chair a couple of times during the meeting, like he might have something to say. But he side's better and leans back. There's a puzzled expression coming over his face. Something strange is going on here. He's finding out. He can't quite put his finger on it, like the way nobody will laugh. Now he thought, sure, there would be a laugh when he asked Ruckley who's wife. But there wasn't even a sign of one. The air is pressed in by the walls too tight for laughing. There's something strange about a place where men won't let themselves loose and laugh. Something strange about the way they all knuckle under that smiling, flower-faced old mother there with the two red lipstick and the two big boobs. He thinks he'll just wait a while to see what the story is in this new place before he makes any kind of play. That's a good rule for a smart gambler. Look the game over a while before you draw yourself a hand. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. I'm breaking the book up as I see fit when I think there's an appropriate pause. Um, So you're just going to have to put up with that. Uh, But I'm hoping that it's going to be broken up in a way that's easy to follow. Um, So... Books that are broken up into parts can be a little bit strange if they're not designated into chapters, Um, but that's what we've got to work with. Once again, I thank you for watching, and until next time, bye-bye.